Hello, and welcome to The Search. I'm Shahe Jurjan. Today, we're going to examine the first half of 1 Corinthians 6. And before we get started, I want to read that section in its entirety. This is 1 Corinthians 6, beginning in verse 1. If any of you has a dispute with another, do you dare to take it before the ungodly for judgment instead of before the Lord's people? Or do you not know that the Lord's people will judge the world? And if you are to judge the world, are you not competent to judge trivial cases? Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more the things of this life? Therefore, if you have disputes about such matters, do you ask for a ruling from those whose way of life is scorned in the church? I say this to shame you. Is it possible there is nobody among you wise enough to judge a dispute between believers? But instead, one brother takes another to court, and this in front of unbelievers. The very fact that you have lawsuits among you means you've been completely defeated already. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Instead, you yourselves cheat and do wrong, and you do this to your brothers and sisters. Or do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. We're going to look at this passage in this lesson. And the title of our lesson is How to Resolve Disputes like a Christian. How to resolve disputes like a Christian. The first six chapters of this letter to the Corinthians constitutes Paul's rebuke of the congregation based upon the reports from Chloe's household. Now, these corrections from the apostle emphasize the anti-Christian problem of division, which was highlighted especially in the first four chapters. Then in chapter 5, Paul condemned their acceptance of a sexually immoral brother, and he instructed them to withdraw fellowship from that man. Chapter 5 concludes with these words. Paul asks, what business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked person from among you. Paul's argument concludes that uh, Christians are not in the business of judging or condemning unbelievers. The church is to evangelize and bring the lost to Christ. However, once a person becomes a Christian and is joined to a congregation of God's people, he or she becomes accountable to them in all righteousness. Christians, of course, are tasked with an enormous responsibility. We are to encourage edify, exhort, instruct, admonish, and correct one another. And to accomplish this, there's a certain amount of judgment that's required so that Christians can spiritually discern the needs of their brothers and sisters. The Lord Jesus clearly condemned hypocritical judgment in that famous statement that he made in Matthew 7 verses 1 through 5 about the beam and the plank. But Paul is reminding us that that doesn't alleviate our responsibility that we have to correct one another when we see our brothers and sisters erring. And this also is a factor when we talk about resolving conflicts between believers. 
In this section in 1 Corinthians 6, which is the, the first half of this chapter, what we're learning here is that Paul is answering the question, how do Christians resolve disputes with one another? How do Christians resolve disputes with one another? Now, I want to note that much of what Paul says here is just building on a foundation that was already laid by Jesus. The Lord Jesus gave maybe one of the most famous speeches about conflict resolution uh, that's ever been given. I want to read it. It's from Matthew 18, verses 15 through 20. Jesus said, if your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you've won them over. But if they will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Truly, I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, truly, I tell you that if two of you on earth agree about anything they ask for, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three gather in my name, there am I with them. Now, the Lord outlined basically four steps for how to resolve conflicts, uh, matters of sin between Christians. The step number one, the first step, is to go privately to the one who has sinned. The offense under consideration here seems to maybe be a private matter, and if it can be resolved and remain private, then that's great. If the offender hears or listens to you, then the problem is resolved and you've gained a brother. Reconciliation has been accomplished. Jesus here doesn't allow for the involvement of any other party, uh, that, and that's a fact that becomes crucially important as we go through this process. Many conflicts between individuals become firestorms because they weren't handled privately to start, and they were publicized unnecessarily. If step one does fail to bring about reconciliation, then step two provides for a few witnesses to be brought along for a second confrontation or for a second discussion. Since this dispute seems to be private, I don't think Jesus is saying that these were two or three witnesses of the offense or of the sin that's being dealt with in question here. Rather, these seem to be witnesses to the person's earnest attempt at resolving this matter. Now, this isn't a legal proceeding, uh, this is a genuine effort to bring about reconciliation because a relationship has been harmed by sin. Step number three, if step one and two fail to produce reconciliation, then and only then is the matter to be taken to one's congregation. And I think this third step is the one that Paul elaborates on in 1 Corinthians 6. We could ask all kinds of questions here that Jesus doesn't necessarily address, like what's the precise role of the congregation in these matters, and why is it that leaders have the authority to settle these kinds of disputes? Paul is going to wade into all of that. But now, we, returning to Jesus, we see a fourth and final step, which is that if one's congregation cannot bring the offending Christian to repentance, they're to discipline him by withdrawing fellowship. That's what it means to treat him like a heathen 
and a tax collector. It means that individual must become an outcast among the body of believers. And this action parallels in many respects what Paul has just told the Corinthians to do in chapter 5 with regards to that unrepentant, immoral brother. Christians who live in complete rebellion against Christ can't continue to enjoy the fellowship of Christ's people. And so long before Paul ever even established the Corinthian congregation, ever wrote this letter to them, even was a follower of Jesus himself, the Lord outlined a rough diagram of how Christians should handle conflicts related to sinful behavior. Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 6 expand a little bit on what Jesus had already prescribed. So we turn again to our text, 1 Corinthians 6, verses 1 through 4. If any of you has a dispute with another, do you dare to take it before the ungodly for judgment instead of before the Lord's people? Or do you not know that the Lord's people will judge the world? And if you're to judge the world, are you not competent to judge trivial cases? Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more the things of this life? Therefore, if you have disputes about such matters, do you ask for a ruling from those whose way of life is scorned in the church? Now, Paul is including a pretty wide variety of possible interpersonal conflicts by vaguely describing the situation as one person having a dispute with another. Obviously, this is a, a huge umbrella here that could cover a wide variety of conflicts. Now, Paul is pretty outraged that instead of resolving these issues internally, they were seeking decisions from unrighteous, from potentially corrupt civil judges. In those days and in that culture, it was not uncommon to bribe judges and to get your way through those kinds of immoral and unjust actions. Perhaps one of the reasons that Paul was so upset about all this was because they weren't following the teachings of Jesus. Jesus said that private and small group conflict resolution needs to be the core of how we settle these kinds of matters. And then the issue is brought to the congregation, not to the civil judiciary. Another reason for the apostle's rebuke is that Paul considers Christians eminently more qualified to resolve conflicts among disciples than unbelievers. And his reasoning for this is really fascinating. The argument is simply this, Christians will judge the world and angels. And since this is true, why would we take our grievances to the lower courts of men when the high court of the church is available to us? Now, I want to say the logic of Paul's argument is actually easy to understand, but his assertions are far from simple. The obvious difficulty here is in knowing what Paul means when he says that the saints will judge the world and angels. One possibility is that Paul is anticipating the eschaton or the end times when Christ returns and believers are enthroned to reign with him. This is kind of how Schreiner breaks this section down. He says the argument here is from the greater to the lesser. If saints will judge the world, which may mean rule the world, they should have the ability to resolve trivial lawsuits cropping up among them. The same kind of argument, argument from the greater to the lesser, is advanced in verse 3. 
as in verse 2, the argument is introduced with the words, do you not know? Believers will judge angels. And here again, the word does not judge does not necessarily mean that believers will assess and mete out rewards and punishment for angels. It probably means that believers will rule over angels. Schreiner continues, this rule is given to believers because they belong to Jesus Christ. For Jesus will allow believers to sit on the throne with him to rule the world. And this rule presumably includes rule over angels. If believers are going to rule over angels, they should be able to resolve disputes over matters of ordinary life. The reign and dominion of the saints alongside the messianic king has its origins way back in one of Daniel's prophecies. Daniel inquired about the great beasts or empires which were designated to persecute the people of God. And this is what he learned in Daniel 7 verses 21 and 22. As I watched, this horn was waging war against the holy people and defeating them until the ancient of days came and pronounced judgment in favor of the holy people of the Most High. And the time came when they possessed the kingdom. For all of human history, the violent, cruel, and evil rulers of the nations have lorded their power over the righteous. The great ancient empires and their modern successors have done their best to stifle those who bend the knee and give their true allegiance to the rule of God. Not so for Christ's eschatological people. Because of their identity with Jesus and his rule over heaven and earth, the tables will turn and the righteous will reign. Paul's saying, in light of these eschatological truths, in light of who we are and to whom we belong, it should be easy for us to settle minor disputes. After all, we're the people that God has designated to rule the world and angels. What an outlook Paul has and what an outlook he wants the Corinthians to have hoping that this will make it so much easier for them to move past these trivial matters. But now he continues to shame them. In verse 5, he says, I say this to shame you. Is it possible that there is nobody among you wise enough to judge a dispute between believers? You can kind of hear the sarcasm in that, in that question. But instead, one brother takes another to court and this in front of unbelievers. The very fact that you have lawsuits among you means that you've been completely defeated already. You've lost the battle. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Instead, you yourselves cheat and do wrong, and you do this to your brothers and sisters. Going to court against one another in this way was shameful and humiliating. It was an embarrassment upon the body of Christ. Paul asked, in a congregation like Corinth, filled with brilliant and gifted people, isn't there one wise person among you 
who can settle these little trivial disputes? Apparently not, he concludes, because a brother takes another to court and the church suffers as a result. Now, the real problem at Corinth was a lack of spiritual priorities. What should be truly important to Christians? The Corinthians were not thinking about their lives in view of Daniel's vision in light of Christ's exalted reign. Rather, they were carnally-minded babies. Christians today, unfortunately, often act in the same way. Many put their own desires above what is best for other believers, for their congregations, for the body of Christ as a whole. And thus, Paul's outline for resolving conflict only slightly modifies what Jesus originally taught. If there is conflict, go to your fellow Christian and try earnestly to resolve it privately. If that fails, bring a couple of wise believers who can mediate a resolution. Choose those two or three among the the most noble, the most respected, and the most wise counselors a congregation has to offer. If that fails, then you go to the church. And it seems that Paul is saying, why wouldn't you? After all, the church is supposed to be made up of Christians who know how to consider a matter and make a judgment. And if that fails, Jesus said what the church must do. The unrepentant offender must be removed from the fellowship of the congregation. Now, finally, Paul considered the plight of the one who was offended. And this is a difficult question. The one who is wronged here, what should he or she do? Jesus never really addressed this, but Paul did. And he says, if one is wronged and the matter cannot be resolved, then it just needs to be dropped. There are times when Christians must simply suffer wrong, be defrauded, and just leave it there. After all, Paul says, make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong, but always strive to do what is good for each other and for everyone else. 1 Thessalonians 5 and verse 15. It's not justice which informs Christian interactions. It's love. And love is patient, does not insist on its own way, keeps no record of wrongs, bears all things, and endures all things. 1 Corinthians 13, verses 4 through 7. Now, love isn't always the easy path, but it's the most Christian path. Now, before we consider the last few verses of this section, which then will segue into the next topic, I want to consider some difficulties here in applying Paul's teaching on conflict resolution. Paul makes a number of assumptions about the situation at Corinth. Number one, he assumes the matters which are being disputed to be trivial. He says, these are trivial things. You should easily be able to settle them or just get over them. So he's assuming that. Number two, he assumes the leaders at Corinth have the capacity and willingness to facilitate a resolution. Number three, he assumes that those who are in conflict are part of the same group or part of the same congregation, and therefore they are under the authority of the same leaders. What do Christians do if they have disputes 
with believers from another area, live on the other side of the country or the other side of the world? Or what, what do you do if your leaders at your congregation, the ones you take this problem to, refuse to do anything to help because they don't want to get involved or because they've decided this is not something that's for them to deal with? What if the matter is not trivial? What if it's very, very serious? Someone's life is in danger, situations of, of abuse and violence. What do you do then? Well, these are difficult questions, and they're not questions that are answered in 1 Corinthians 6. I want to make sure that we understand that this passage has a context, and we ought not to push it beyond that context. Now, those questions that I just enumerated, they're good questions, and I'm not saying they're not answered anywhere in Scripture, but they're definitely not answered here. For 1 Corinthians 6 to be applied, it must be interpreted within the context in which Paul frames it. And those other questions will have to be answered perhaps by other passages from other parts of Scripture. So, for now, we see these trivial cases should have been handled internally and there was no reason for them to be taken to the unrighteous, corrupt courts of men. How does Paul wrap up this little section here? Well, he does so like this in verses 9 through 11. Or do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. The unrighteous, the wrongdoers, will not inherit the kingdom of God. And I think that statement implicitly places what Paul has just been discussing about taking these trivial matters to court and all the mess that that was causing on the same level as these deplorable sins that all the Corinthians would agree are wrong. These are wicked things. We just don't think these other things we're doing are quite so bad. Paul says, no, no, this is all wrongdoing. This is all unrighteousness. This sin list here is one of many that Paul will write in his letters. Paul created these kinds of lists to sort of summarize the, the most common sins accepted by the culture of his audience, and they encapsulate, of course, how backward the ancient world was, and they're thinking about morality, and maybe how backward the modern world is in its own thinking about morality as well. Paul says, you used to practice some of these things, you Corinthians, they used to be outside of God's family. They lived immorally in a world of idolatry, but then they heard the gospel and they became followers of the Lord Jesus. We read that in Acts 18. And this changed their eternal destiny. It made them co-heirs with Christ. Now they rule with Jesus. Paul's sin list may seem out of place considering he's just been rebuking them about legal actions. But the point Paul is making is that if the Corinthians were able to give up these sins, certainly 
they can abandon their absurd and trivial lawsuits. To be washed is to be cleansed. To be sanctified is made holy. To be justified is to be declared righteous before God. This is how Paul sort of summarizes the process of their transformation. And this change in their status before God and in the manifestation of their character was the result of the work of all three divine persons of the Godhead. This is not just something the Corinthians were able to do of their own gumption. They just woke up one day and decided they were going to quit all these sins. No, this is the work of God in them, the work of the Lord Jesus, the work of the Spirit, and the work of our God, transforming them into the image of Christ. Now, Paul was almost certainly referring to their baptism when he noted that the Corinthians had been washed. Paul himself was asked by the preacher Ananias, why are you waiting? Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord, Acts twenty-two sixteen. The Corinthians had become believers and were baptized when they learned the gospel from Paul in Acts 18, verse 8. Earlier in the letter, Paul argued against their cliquishness by reminding them that baptism is not in the name of their favorite leader. It's in Christ's name and only possible because of Christ's death. And so Christ is honored through baptism. Paul taught that baptism is important, although the baptizer is not. And later in this letter, Paul will add that baptism is the unifying method whereby one is added to Christ's body. He's going to say, listen, there are all kinds of different people in a congregation of Christ, but all believers became Christians the same way, and that was in part through baptism. 1 Corinthians 12, verses 12 and 13. And so, Paul says, they were washed, and this began their process of sanctification, and the moment when they were declared righteous before God. Now, lastly, I want to consider this little expression here, inherit the kingdom of God. Paul says wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God. But what does it mean to inherit the kingdom? Well, this expression fits perfectly with Paul's earlier reference to Christians judging or ruling the world and angels. The kingdom of God is about God's dominion, particularly over the earth. It concerns that about which Jesus taught the disciples to pray. May your kingdom come, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Matthew 6 and verse 10. And those who have inherited the kingdom, those who belong to the ruling and reigning Messiah, are described by John in this way. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve his God and Father. To him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Revelation 1 verses 5 and 6. Paul's point is this. Those who have been washed, made holy, and justified before God have become partakers of of Christ's kingdom. They've been appointed as royal priests. They have inherited the kingdom of God. 
And those who continue in unrepentant sin, well, they have no place in God's kingdom. But those who belong to Christ live in such a way that is ultimately for the glory of God. The high language that Paul uses in this section is just beautiful. It is a a whole new heavenly perspective about life, about what it means to be an image bearer of God, what it means to be born again into the image of Christ, what it means to have crucified self and to allow Christ to live in and through us. If the Corinthians would think this way, if the Corinthians would start to implement in their own mind this worldview, all these little trivial things, they would just melt away. If believers would remember how amazing and incredible it is to be citizens in Messiah's kingdom, they would never let personality conflicts, business entanglements, or any other source of strife and discord harm their, to harm their relationships with one another. And so we pray that it will always be that Christians will determine to resolve their disputes in a way that is befitting their high calling in Christ Jesus, the Lord of glory, to take on the worldview of the Apostle Paul, who was willing at times to say, if I need to be wronged, and I need to be cheated, so be it. But I will not live in a way that detracts from the glory of God and defames what it means to be an heir of Christ. And so we pray that all believers will have the mind that the Apostle Paul had, the mind of Christ. God bless you, and we'll see you next time.